you of your great mercy, we offer ourselves to you as living sacrifices. Lord, our worship, yes, it is the songs we sing. Yes, it is the desire to lift up the praise of our lips to you, God, but it's more than that. You deserve our whole life. You deserve our whole heart. But Lord, we know we come in here this morning knowing full well that we don't, we don't give you all of ourselves. We don't do everything you ask. We, we fall short of what you call us to. And, and so that's why we're so thankful for your mercy. That's why we're so thankful for the way that you have pursued us. You have come after us. You have reached to us and rescued our hearts, Lord. And so we worship you this morning. We praise you. And, and God, as we open your word, as we turn to open your word, we, we're, we're banking on your promise this morning. Lord, in your word, you say, open your mouth and I will fill it. God, and that is the promise that we're banking on. We're banking as we open up our hearts, as we open up our lives to you, Lord, that your word will fill us, that your word will satisfy our hearts, that, that because your word leads us to you, God, that we will find all of our joy and all of our life in knowing you and walking with you. So we humble ourselves now before you. We long to listen to your word. Lord, right now, please, Lord, soften our hearts. Make us like clay in your hands. Form us, mold us, make us whoever you want us to be for your glory. In Jesus' holy and precious name, amen. You may be seated. Uh, I don't know about you, but I don't like being in the dark. Uh, occasionally, I'll have to wake up nice and early in the morning before anybody else in my house wakes up, and out of courtesy, I will try to leave the lights off. Uh, but it's always funny to me when a few hours later I realize I've put my shirt on backwards or I'm wearing uh, two completely different socks, sock colors or something like that. Uh, or, or, or I can, I can think of go, trying to maybe go out into the garage, into the abyss of darkness, and uh, being a little lazy or, or, or feeling a little overconfident, and rather than turning on the lights, I just kind of wander out into the chaos only to, to stub my toe or to whack my head on, on something. Right? When we're in the dark, we lose a very important sense. When we're in the dark, we don't know what's going on around us. We can't see where we are or what's happening. When we're in the dark, we lose our ability to find our way. Uh, all throughout the Bible, the, the image of light and darkness is used. And one of the really important ways that, that the Bible talks about light and dark is this. The difference between living life with God's word and living life without God's word. Without the word of God, we are living in the dark. We don't know where we are. We don't know where we're going. We can't even properly assess ourselves. Uh, without the Word of God, we make foolish judgments. Uh, without the Word of God, we make irrational decisions. Without these scriptures, without this Bible, without the Word of God, you and I are attempting to live our lives in the dark. And that's why in Psalm 119.105 that we heard read this morning, it says, Your word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. The, the word of God rescues us out of the darkness of our best ideas. It rescues us out of the darkness of this world's ideas. It, it rescues us out of the darkness of our best guesses. 
And this Bible, these scriptures, bring us in to the light of God's reality. You know, he didn't make this world after all. He does know how things work. And in his word, he wants to help us to see the reality of life in his world. In Ezra, uh, we've been working through the book of Ezra uh, over the last few weeks. And last week in Ezra chapter 4, we saw that God's people turned away from following through. They turned away from obeying God. And it's almost like for 20 years, for almost 20 years, God's people wandered in the darkness of disobedience. But then, in God's grace, it's as if he came and turned on the lights. And that's what we see in Ezra 5 verse 1. It says, Now the prophets Haggai and Zechariah, the son of Iddo, prophesied to the Jews who were in Judah and Jerusalem in the name of the God of Israel who was over them. God, after almost 20 years, interrupted their darkness. So today what we're going to do is we're actually going to turn from the book of Ezra, and I'm going to invite you to turn to the book of Haggai. Because Haggai was one of these prophets that God used to turn on the lights. For his people. So if you have a Bible, I want to invite you to turn with me to the book of Haggai. Uh, if you're looking for it, it's near the New Testament. On my Bible, it is page 1,241. I'm sure that will be of great help to you uh, as you seek to find Haggai. And this morning, as we talk about the Word of the Lord, as we talk about God's Word, for our purposes, what we are talking about is, is the Bible. We're talking about the Scriptures. Uh, you and I have this great privilege that, that we actually get to own these Bibles. You know, there's been times in history when people couldn't actually have owned the Word of God. But you and I own this. We can listen to it on our phones or in our cars. We can gather to a place like this and hear the Word of God preached. Uh, we can gather in smaller groups and discuss the Bible. This is such a privilege to have the Word of God because without it, we're living in the dark. But with it, we can actually see reality the way God sees it. So today we're going to look at seven reasons from the book of Haggai why you and I need the Word of God. Why do we desperately need the Bible? And the first is this, the Word of God gives perspective. The Word of God gives perspective. Um, really excited? We are going to read an entire book of the Bible here today. Who's excited about that? Woo! So when you leave here, if you've never read a book of the Bible, you can leave here today and say, I've read a book of the Bible. I'm excited. Here we go. Verses 1 and 2. In the second year of Darius the king, in the sixth month, on the first day of the month, the word of the Lord came by the hand of Haggai the prophet to Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, governor of Judah, and to Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest. Thus says the Lord of hosts, these people say the time has not yet come to rebuild the house of the Lord. So in effect, God's people have said, ah, oh, you know what? It kind of seems like the doors are closing Maybe this isn't the right time. You know, maybe, we know God wants us to build the temple, but maybe we'll build it later. You know, we're not going to totally abandon it, just, just not right now. And verse 3 and 4 continue. Then the word of the Lord came by the hand of Haggai the prophet. Is it a time for you yourselves to dwell in your paneled houses while this house lies in ruins? So for almost 20 years... God has listened to their excuses. He's listened to their word, their version of reality, 
what they think they're supposed to do. But now he interrupts their darkness with his word. And he basically says this, huh, you don't have time or energy or the resources to prioritize my house, but it sure seems like you have the time and energy and resources to prioritize your own houses. My house lies in ruins, but you guys are living in your nice, cozy, comfy, comfy houses that you've built for yourselves. And then in verses 5 and 6, it says, Now therefore, thus says the Lord of hosts, Consider your ways. You have sown much and harvested little. You eat, but you never have enough. You drink, but you never have your fill. You clothe yourselves, but no one is warm. And he who earns wages does so to put them into a bag with holes. So they decided to live according to their own word instead of the word of the Lord. They decided to prioritize, prioritize their way of life instead of God's glory. But here's the question we have to ask this morning. Had life gotten better for them? When they followed their word instead of God's, were they more content? Were they more fulfilled? Were they more satisfied? No. The more they tried to accumulate for themselves, it was as if their pocketbooks and purses and even their souls themselves had holes in them. That as they tried to scrape things towards themselves and make life all about them, it only made matters worse and worse and worse and worse. What we see in Haggai is that the word of God is like smelling salts to people who have been inebriated on their own selfishness. I actually looked up just kind of a, a basic definition of what, a sm what smelling salts are. It says smelling salts are used to arouse consciousness because the release of ammonia gas that accompanies their use irritates the membranes of the nose and lungs and thereby triggers an inhalation reflex. This reflex alters the pattern of breathing, resulting in improved respiratory flow rates and alertness. This is what the Word of God does for us. It wakes us up from our slumber. It smacks us in the face with God's truth. That what God wants for you and me is for every single day to have the smelling salts of His Word, to hit us in the face, to hit us in the nose, and to reawaken us to the fact that when we live for ourselves, that is actually self-sabotage. That when we prioritize ourselves, we are actually killing ourselves. As Jesus said, the one who wants to save his life will lose it. And so if the way we get perspective is from God's word, then you and I must prioritize it. Right? It, it, should, it should have its top priority in our lives, both in our minds and in, in our hearts. Right? We've got so much access to the word of God. And what God is telling us this morning, if you want to see life from my perspective, it's yours for the taking. If you want to understand how God sees the world, here it is. This is what the Word of God does for us. Um, hey, if you're here this morning and you don't own a Bible, uh, there's a rack of Bibles in the back back there. Uh, we would love for you to take one. It's our gift to you to, to take, to own, to read, and to prioritize. And so if you're here and you, and you want to take one of those Bibles, please do. It's our gift to you. So God interrupts us. And his word gets, gives us perspective. But then the next thing that happens, secondly, is that the word of God gives conviction. The word of God gives conviction. Verses 7 through 11 continue 
in this same kind of way. It says, Thus says the Lord of hosts, Consider your ways. Go up to the hills and bring wood and build the house that I may take pleasure in it and that I may be glorified, says the Lord. You look for much, and behold, it came to little. And when you brought it home, I blew it away. Why, declares the Lord of hosts? Because of my house that lies in ruins, while each of you busies himself with his own house. Therefore the heavens above have withheld the dew, and the earth has withheld its produce. And I have called for a drought on the land and the hills, on the grain, the new wine, the oil, and and on what the ground brings forth, on man and beast, and on all their labors. So what were they supposed to do? They were supposed to build the temple for God's glory. But instead, they had chosen what they thought was the safer and the easier route. But as they tried to pursue gaining life for themselves outside of God, they found that that what the life that they longed for had been elusive. The life and the satisfaction and the fulfillment that they thought they were choosing by prioritizing themselves had slipped through their fingers. Why? Well, he tells them clearly, but let's pause for a moment. Life is not a system of input and output. Life is actually not a mathematical equation. Uh, Larry Crabb, in his book, The Pressure's Off, he, he talks about this. I think it's so helpful the way he describes it. What he calls the law of linearity. The law of linearity. Um, this is what he says. He says, I'm troubled most by the often unstated and unrecognized assumption that lies beneath our resolve to experience a better life. The assumption might be called the law of linearity. It goes like this. Choose what you want out of life. Figure out what you have to do to get it, and then follow the rules. Select the B you desire, then perform the A that leads to it. There's an A, a strategy, that leads to every B, a goal. That is the law of linearity. Well, God is turning on the lights for us this morning in the book of Haggai to teach us that the law of linearity is a sham. It's as if God is saying, you keep putting A in, expecting to get B, and yet the more you put in A, the further and further you are away from B. Why is that? Well, he tells us in verse 9, because of my house that lies in ruins, while each of you busies himself with his own house. God's word convicts us. It declares our guilt. It pronounces a judgment against us. As long as we're in the dark, we can fool ourselves. But when the Word of God, when the Bible reveals how God sees things, then we see that we've just been fooling ourselves. Uh, There were a couple different interviews where one of our former U.S. presidents was asked about his faith. And when he was asked specifically if he had asked for forgiveness from God, he said, I like to be good. I don't like to have to ask for forgiveness. 
I am good. I don't do a lot of things that are bad. I try to do nothing that is bad. Well, here's the thought that went through my mind when I heard that. I thought, you know, that kind of naivety and self-deception is pretty much exactly how most of us live our lives most of the time. That when we're in the dark, when we're not in the Word of God, we think, yeah, you know, I'm, I'm a pretty good person. I don't do a lot of bad stuff. Right? I don't have a lot to ask for forgiveness of. You know, I, I never try to do bad things. But then we come to the Word. We read it and we hear the reality from God's perspective. And we see <laughs> we're so wrong. See, when our Bibles collect dust, our hearts grow calloused. And we we actually lose the shock of how bad our disobedience towards God really is. And maybe it's not, maybe for you it's not even that your Bible collects dust. Maybe it's just that we pick and choose which parts of it we want to read. Right? Guys, there's lots of comfort in the Bible. And we're going to get there. It's exciting. But before the comfort will even mean anything to us, we have to hear all of God's Word We have to experience everything that God says. We have to let God set the agenda. Because contrary to popular opinion, sometimes what God knows we need is to feel bad. God's word gives us perspective. It comes in, it shows us the reality, and when it does, it convicts us. And what we've got to embrace and own and believe wholeheartedly is that when God does convict us, when He does pronounce this judgment against us, when He does reveal to us the deep, dark crevices of our hearts, that is His mercy. So God's Word gives perspective. Perspective leads to conviction. But then third, the Word of God gives orientation. The Word of God gives orientation. Verse 12 records the response of the people. It says, Then Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, and Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest, with all the remnant of the people, obeyed the voice of the Lord their God and the words of Haggai the prophet, as the Lord their God had sent him, and the people feared the Lord. So they heard this convicting message, but instead of just wallowing in self-pity, instead of just feeling ashamed, no, 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 this, this message led them to repentance, and repentance is all about a new orientation. I, uh, I have a good friend who told me the story about him and his wife driving to go visit her parents. And they got going down the interstate, and his wife decided to take a little nap. And he decided to put his headphones in and start listening to John Piper sermons. Now, uh, if anybody here knows who John Piper is, he is a pastor who will make you think. He will really uh, take you down into some deep waters. Well, my friend said two hours later, his wife whacked him and said, do you realize where we are? He had missed an exit, and they were 100 miles in the wrong direction. Now, what wouldn't have cut it in that moment is if he had said, oh, shoot, but then just kept driving in the wrong direction. No, what was needed in that moment was a U-turn. And that is what the Word of God does. It doesn't just come into our lives so that we'll admit that we're wrong. 
oh shoot, but then we just keep going. No, the word of God takes us by the hand and through repentance it turns us back to God. That's why it says at the end of verse 12, the people feared the Lord. They got refocused on who God was. The problem in chapter 4 when they disobeyed is that they took their eyes off of God. And so now the word of the Lord comes in and they see God again and it turns them. Uh, One of the things I love about this little book of Haggai, there's only 35 verses in the whole book. 38 times the proper name of God is used. I don't know, you'll, you'll notice it now as we continue to read. You literally have to trip over God as you try to read through the book of Haggai. That's all he's really, down at the rock bottom, that's all he's really trying to do. He's just trying to shove God back into the center. He's trying to put God back in the vision. And that's what true repentance is. Repentance is not just feeling bad for stuff you've done. Repentance is turning towards God and being brought back into his presence. So we should approach God's word expecting to change. Is that how you approach God's word? Approach God's word expecting to turn, expecting to change, expecting to reorient, expecting to reroute every time we approach his word. But this is what we do a lot of times. You know, we do the thing where we say, you know what? I'm going to pray about that. But in reality, we've already made up our mind, right, what we're going to do. And this is the thing. I'm all for praying for stuff, right? We need to pray for stuff. But guess what, guys? There's actually some stuff that you don't have to pray about. There are some things where there is no discernment needed. Should you get baptized? No prayer needed. If you've put your faith in Jesus, the answer is yes. Should you be faithful to your spouse? Don't have to pray about that one, guys. Answer is yes. Do we forgive every person for every offense that they have sinned against us with? Don't have to pray about it. Yes. And the list could go on and on and on. We, we do that thing. We play that game with the Lord where we, so we act like, oh, yeah, I was like, God, I'm going to pray. Like, I do it. We do it, right? The word of God comes. It convicts, gives perspective, but then it leads us to God. See, guys, out there in the darkness of the world, you are going to get all sorts of mixed answers. And if you're like me, in the darkness of your own mind and heart, what, what you'll sort of always land on is the selfish answer. We need God to speak, to show us what he really wants, what really glorifies him, what really magnifies him. So God's word seems to have had its intended effect, right? They were in disobedience. God speaks. They repent. Now they're obedient. End of the book, right? No, we're just getting started. But why? Well, because we need more. We need more of what God's word brings. And so forth, the word of God gives assurance. The word of God gives assurance. Verses 13 to 15 say, 
Then Haggai, the messenger of the Lord, spoke to the people with the Lord's message. So here, here's the follow-up. Here's the end. Here's the final speech. So it, so it seems. I am with you, declares the Lord. And the Lord stirred up the spirit of Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, governor of Judah, and the spirit of Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest, and the spirit of all the remnant of the people. And they came and worked on the house of the Lord of hosts, their God, on the 24th day of the month, in the sixth month, in the second year of Darius the king. So guys, you got to remember, 20, almost 20 years earlier, they had set out to obey God. And what had happened? They had gotten discouraged. They had been tempted. And now they've decided, okay, we're going to obey again. And guess what's going to happen? Those same discouragements are going to come again. And that's why they need this assurance. They need to hear God look them in the face and say to them, I'm with you. And this is why you and I, if we're going to survive in this Christian life, we have to memorize Scripture. We have to know what God says. When we get in those moments, when those discouragements come, when the diversions come, when the same old things come back around again and again and again to tempt us again to not obey, to not follow through, to not go all the way with the Lord, what we need in those moments is to hear the voice of God saying, I am with you. And to have his word flowing in our hearts and in our minds so that we can fight, that we can run the race with endurance. And then this is what I love about how chapter 2 begins. Uh, it gives us a little marker of time. So we learn that when Haggai came the first time and then the, peop the people obey, then in chapter 2, as chapter 2 begins, it's a month later. So another message comes a month later. And this is what it says, chapter 2, 1 to 5. In the seventh month, on the 21st day of the month, the word of the Lord came by the hand of Haggai the prophet. Speak now to Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, governor of Judah, and to Joshua, son of Jehozadak, the high priest, and to all the remnant of the people, and say, Who is left among you who saw this house in its former glory? How do you see it now? Is it not as nothing in your eyes? Yet now be strong, O Zerubbabel, declares the Lord. Be strong, O Joshua, son of Jehozadak, the high priest. Be strong, all you people of the land, declares the Lord. Work, for I am with you, declares the Lord of hosts. According to the covenant that I made with you when you came out of Egypt, my spirit remains in your midst. Fear not. God is pouring on the assurance. He's encouraging his people. He's stirring them up to follow through with obedience. The picture I have in my head is like I'm at a race. I don't know if you've ever been to a marathon, 5K, something like that. You know, people are always like slogging through. And then there's these people on the side and they're just saying, keep going, don't give up. Put one foot in front of the other. But you know, a lot of times when you're at those races, there will be some things attached to, to that encouragement. Keep going, don't give up. Why? You can do it. You've got this. You've trained for this. When God comes to encourage us, when God comes to assure our hearts, here is one major difference. He never says, don't give up, keep going. You got this. He says, keep, up, keep, keep it up, keep going. I'm with you. Keep going, don't give up. My promises will stand. 
When God assures our hearts, he never points to our ability. He never points to our potential. He points us to him. And here's another just good, good thing, good thing to keep in mind about the Bible. Yes, church, the, the Bible is for us, but the Bible is not about us. God has given his word for us. But the whole point is for it to draw our attention to him, his strength, his power, his promise. So God's word assures us in the present, but it goes further than that. I love this. I love how he says, I'm with you in the present. I'm right here. I'm with you all the way. But then God pushes past. And so fifth, the word of God gives hope. In verses 6 to 9, God turns from declaring what he's doing in the present, doing what he's doing right now. I'm with you. And then he begins to declare what he's going to do in the future. It says, For thus says the Lord of hosts, Yet once more in a little while I will shake the heavens and the earth and the sea and the dry land, and I will shake all the nations so that the treasures of all nations shall come in, and I will fill this house with glory, says the Lord of hosts. The silver is mine and the gold is mine, declares the Lord of hosts. The latter glory of this house shall be greater than the former, says the Lord of hosts. And in this place I will give peace, declares the Lord hosts. God knows how anxious you and I get when we're in the dark. He knows how prone we are to worry and to fret. And so in his grace, God peels back the curtain on history and he gives us a little glimpse of the future to assure our hearts and encourage us to keep going in him, for him, with him. The first temple that Solomon had built had been over the top amazing. Um, it, says, uh, it says that there was, there was this queen, the Queen of Sheba, in 1 Kings, when she came to visit Solomon, she saw Solomon and she saw the temple and the house that he had built. It literally says that she lost her breath. I mean, this place was a sight to behold, but now... For Zerubbabel and for Joshua, they looked at the house, and what did they see? They just saw rubble. And so how encouraging would it have been for them to hear, for, for them to hear God say the latter glory, in other words, the glory that's coming, is going to be even greater than the former. Like there's something coming that will be even better than what Solomon had in the first temple. You know, how could their minds have even grasped that? And this is what I love about the Word of God. I think God knows that one of the deepest darknesses for us is despair. That the worst kind of discouragement is to look around and feel like there's no way forward. To look around and the to feel like this is it. We're at the end. Life's over. And so many times I think you and I end up without, without even trying to, we end up feeding that despair. 
We feed that despair by keeping in our vision the wrong pictures, the wrong images. We fill our minds with all the chaos that's going on all around us, and we, we feed the despair. But what God wants is for us to fill our vision with His Word, so that through His Word we would have hope, that through His Word the despair would be dispelled, that for every one look at the news, we would take ten looks at the Bible. That for every one look at our present circumstances, we would take ten looks at our bright future that we have in Christ Jesus. That is the kind of hope that God wants to afford. You know, thinking about darkness, um, our family, we don't really do scary movies, okay? Um, if you do scary movies, I'll be up here at the front. I'd love to pray for you after the service. Um, we, can, we can work on that. Um, our threshold for scary is about like a 2 out of 10, and even when, when it's a two, it has to be broad daylight on a Saturday afternoon, right? So what I've learned about those scary movies is like, it's so funny how if you just mute the TV, like it just loses its scare. You're just like, oh, it's like not even scary anymore. And especially if it's in broad daylight. Broad daylight, mute the TV, that's how to watch a scary movie. There's something about when you and I are going through life and we're full of despair, God has given us a way to mute, to take the sting out of it. That when we see what he has given us in Jesus Christ, it, it's not that, it, it's not that the, 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 the reasons for despair go away, but they lose their, their terror. They lose their control over us. These people would have had a hard time, I think, even imagining what God was going to do. They might have had a picture in their, their head of some beautiful big building, you know, some bedazzled, awesome temple kind of place. Uh, what, what they could have never imagined is that while it was awesome, while it was amazing that the glory of God had existed in a building, that it was going to be even more glorious, that the glory of God was going to come in a person that the glory of God was going to arrive in the God-man, Jesus Christ. And that's why he adds in the prophecy, he adds in the prediction, verse 9, and in this place I will give peace. Because it is through God's Son, Jesus Christ, that He made peace with sinners like you and me. It is through what happened in that man's body on the cross, that God brought sinners back into relationship with himself. I love Colossians 1, 19-20. It's almost like a New Testament version of Haggai 2.9. Colossians 1, 19-20 says, For in him, talking about Jesus, For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. There he is, the living temple. Uh, if, you're in our, if you're in a small group right now, we're studying John 2, and Jesus, Jesus calls himself the temple. Here he is, the fullness of God in, in this man. Second half of the verse. And through him, to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. If you came here today convicted of your sin, if you came here today and as you've heard the word, you have felt bad. What God wants 
is he wants you to run to Jesus Christ. Because it is in Jesus Christ that he died in the place for sinners. That he makes reconciliation so that you and I can be embraced in the Father's arms. Don't leave here today under the weight of your guilt, under the weight of conviction. Run to Jesus. So yes, the word convicts us, and then it calls us to repentance. But then God also gives assurance and hope. And I love kind of just seeing the timeline of this book. You have to read carefully, but you kind of see the timeline of this book, that the rest of Haggai occurs then two months later. So if you're wanting to get a picture of the book of Haggai, the entire ministry of Haggai lasted for four months. We don't hear about him at all. Four months, boom, don't hear about him again. That's it. It's like he shows up, the people are broken down on the side of the road, he attaches his jumper cables, shoots the word of God into their life, they get back to work, and he leaves the, leaves the scene. It's awesome. So the last, this last section of Haggai is, is four months later, which leads us sixth to the fact that the word of God gives blessing. The word of God gives blessing. Let's read starting in verse 10. It says, On the 24th day of the ninth month, in the second year of Darius, the word of the Lord came by Haggai the prophet. Thus says the Lord of hosts, Ask the priests about the law. If someone carries holy meat in the fold of his garment and touches with his fold bread or stew or wine or oil or any kind of food, does it become holy? The priests answered and said, No. Then Haggai said, If someone who is unclean, by contact with the dead body, touches any of these, does it become unclean? And the priest answered and said, It does become unclean. Then Haggai answered and said, So is it with this people and with this nation before me, declares the Lord, and so with every work of their hands. And what they offer there is unclean. So here's the basic idea. Take something that's holy. You rub it up against something that's unholy. Does the unholy thing then become holy? Answer, no. All right, scenario two. Take something that's unholy, unclean. Rub it up against something that's holy and clean. Does that thing now become unclean? Answer, yes. So here we go. God is telling the people, he's pointing back, and he's, he's wanting to show them something. He's wanting them to see that their religious activity was spoiled by their disobedience and that their disobedience was not covered up during those 20 years by their religious activity. Here we go. Let's, make, let's bring it down to earth for us. Our disobedience is not fixed by church activity and our church activity, if it is done while we are also deliberately disobeying God. Canceled out. Yo, one more time. Church activity. Spoiled by deliberate disobedience. Deliberate disobedience. Not helped or fixed one bit by church activity. Cool. We got to keep going. You'll see why this matters in a second. 15 to 17. Now then, consider from this day onward 
Before a stone was placed upon stone in the temple of the Lord, how did you fare? When one came to heap up 20 measures, there were but 10. When one came to the wine vat to draw 50 measures, there were but 20. I struck you in all the products, uh, the products of your toil with blight and with mildew and with hail, yet you did not turn to me, declares the Lord. What is God doing? Well, he's coming back four months later, and he's reminding them of how they had been walking in disobedience. And he's reminding them that when they were walking in disobedience, life was getting worse and worse and worse and worse. And that even though in those 18 years or so that they were trying to do religious activity, it was actually getting them nowhere. God is rewinding the tape, so to speak, so that they will be clearly reminded of how bad life was when they were walking in disobedience. I'm sure uh, some of y'all are like me. You love to watch those transformation shows, right? Maybe it's like a house, like, a, like an old dilapidated house, now gets like refurbished. Uh, maybe somebody loses like an insurmountable amount of uh, weight, and it's just like a really cool thing. Or, um, you know, I don't know, maybe someone learns a cool new skill. Uh, but what, what I love about those shows, like my favorite part about those shows is at the very end, when they reveal like the final thing and you see what the, the, the old picture was and it makes it just that much more dramatic when you see the new, when you see what, what has been done, it, it, it paints that dramatic picture of transformation for you. Well, that is exactly what God is doing here in his word. God comes to us and he wants us to see just how far off we are when we try to live life our own way. He wants us to be reminded. Even after you become a Christian, sometimes you actually learned then that back there you are way further off. Like, like when you were here before you were a Christian, you thought like, yeah, I'm not a really great person. Now you're a Christian and you're like, oh my gosh, I was terrible. And then in verse 18 and 19, after recounting the depth of sin, it makes the announcement of grace that much sweeter. Consider from this day onward, from the 24th day of the ninth month, since the day that the foundation of the Lord's temple was laid, consider, is the seed yet in the barn? Indeed, the vine, the fig tree, the pomegranate, and the olive tree have yielded nothing, but, but, from this day on, I will bless you. So we come to God's word to hear who we are. We come to God's word to figure out how God views us. And what does he do? He holds up two pictures. Here's who you are trying to live apart from me. Here's who you are trying to live according to your word. Here's who you are when you follow your own path, and it is an absolute tragedy. But then here's who you are under my grace. Here's who you are by faith in me. And it is blessing. All throughout the Bible, God does this. Uh, here's one of the clearest places for me that God does this. It's in Ephesians chapter 2 at the beginning. 
where he puts these two things right beside each other so that you and I, even, even decades after we've been following Christ, decades after we've known the Lord, he wants us to still remember who we were before. He says, and you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, i.e., we were disciples of Satan, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind, i.e., all that you and I deserved outside of Christ was hell. But God. But God, being rich in mercy. Because of the great love with which he loved us. Even when we were dead in our trespasses. Made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. And raised us up with him and seated us with him. In the heavenly places. In Christ Jesus. Could there be a greater contrast. Who we are in ourselves. Who we are in Christ. You can't, you can't, you could never get to the, the edges of that contrast. So here's the question we have to ask this morning. Whose word most defines my identity? Whose voice most shapes the way I view myself? When we come to the Bible and we hear what God has to say about us, it is hard. It does hurt because we see that in ourselves we are rotten. We see that compared to Him and His holiness and His glory, we are utterly forsaken. But then it just makes it that much more sweet that God would pursue sinners like us that God would love rebels like us, that he would send his son to die for people like us who had tried so hard to find life outside of him. And when we realize, when we see those two pictures side by side, and, and it hits us and we get it, it melts us. And it shapes us forever. So God's word Trying to, trying to figure out how this book works. It showed us very clearly what we're not doing. It showed us in an awesome way what God is doing. And now it's beginning to tell us who we are. And so finally this morning, the Word of God gives courage. The Word of God gives courage. This is it, guys. We've made it through. Book of Haggai. Verses 20 to 23. The Word of the Lord came a second time to Haggai on the 24th day of the month. Speak to Zerubbabel, governor of Judah, saying, I'm about to shake the heavens and the earth and to overthrow the throne of the kingdoms, to destroy the strength of the kingdoms of the nations and overthrow the chariots and their riders. And the horses and their riders shall go down every one by the sword of his brother. On that day, declares the Lord of hosts, I will take you, O Zerubbabel, my, my servant, the son of Shealtiel, declares the Lord, and make you like a signet ring. For I have chosen you, declares the Lord of hosts. So this last section, these last few verses of Haggai are aimed at one person. This is a message for Zerubbabel. 
And yes, this would have been a shot of courage for a, a leader who needed to lead God's people in obedience, right? This would have been a shot of courage to hear God say that he was about to overthrow the throne of kingdoms, right? This would have been an encouragement to him. But here's, here's my question. Why did this make it in the book? Right? Why couldn't Haggai have just taken Zerubbabel off to the side and just shared this, this specific message that was for him with him? Why does he put this in here for us? Well, what we learn is that all throughout the Old Testament, the anticipation for a Savior was growing greater and greater and greater. The anticipation for someone who would be like God's signet ring, who would be this victorious champion, the anticipation was growing greater and greater and greater. A signet ring is the imprint of a king's authority, right? If you have the signet ring, you've got the king's authority. You can go and do and be who the king is supposed to be, who the, who, who the king is supposed to be in his absence. And what God was pointing them towards was someone who would be like that with God, who would be this imprint of God's authority, who would, who would image God and lead God's people and be victorious for God's people. And so on the first page of the New Testament, the very first chapter of the New Testament, Matthew records for us the genealogy of Jesus Christ. And in Matthew 1.12 it says, And after the deportation to Babylon, Jeconiah was the father of Shealtiel, and Shealtiel the father of Zerubbabel. God was, yes, encouraging the people by telling him that his kingdom was going to break into this earth. But the way he encouraged them was by reminding them that the Messiah, the Savior, was going to come as one of Zerubbabel's descendants. So you and I, we live in a state of a need for courage. And so we come to the Bible, and we're hoping that God will help us. We're hoping that God will encourage us. And so we look to God and His Word for courage. But this is what we learn. This is what He did in the Old Testament, and this is what He do, does today. When God goes to give you and me courage, he shines the light on Jesus. That it is by seeing Jesus that we get courage. It is by knowing that we have a champion who is undefeated, who is victorious, who is the imprint of God's authority, that, that he is the one that we look to. That is how God gives us courage. You and I go to the Bible looking for self-confidence, and instead what God gives us is Christ-confidence. You and I go hoping that God will somehow tell us that we can do it. But instead, he says, no, 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 get your eyes on my Messiah. Because he's the one who's going to lead you to victory. He's the one who's undefeatable. So these smelling salts of God's word, yes, we need to be smacked in the face with our sin. But more importantly, we need to be hit with the reality of Jesus Christ. Yes, daily. You and I need to have the lights turned on to how ridiculous we are. But more important, we need the lights turned on to who our Savior is. And so here's the great question for our lives. The great question for our lives and the great question for our generation. Whose word will we listen to? Whose opinions will we embrace Whose suggestions will we follow? Whose version of the current reality will we believe? I love how 
At the very beginning of Haggai, in verse 2, it said, These people say, The time has not yet come to rebuild the house of the Lord. Haggai, the whole book of Haggai is setting up the great dilemma that you and I have. Are we going to follow our word or are we going to follow God's word? Are we going to listen to what we have to say or are we going to listen to what he has to say? Are we going to do what we think is best? Try to put all the pieces together from history, how ridiculous everybody's been over time and try to put that all together and try to make an educated guess? Or will we open our lives and hearts to his word to hear what he has to say? That is the great challenge of your life and of our generation. When we live without God's word, we're in the dark. We don't know where we're going. We don't know who we are. We live in despair. We think the sky is falling. But then we get into God's word and we see who he is. We see what he says about us. And better yet, we see who his appointed Savior is, and then we live in the light. Psalm 119, 105, your word is a lamp into our feet and a light into our path. So I ask again, whose word will we listen to? Lord, as much as we would all love to believe that we would want to prioritize you and prioritize your word. Lord, we know that we are so prone to selfishness. We're so prone to desire the safety of walking according to our own way. God, we are so easily influenced by the people around us in our lives, the deception of our own hearts. And so God, even this morning, I know we can get all razzed up about wanting to follow your word, but God, we confess that unless your Holy Spirit works at home to our hearts, we'll be no better for it. So God, we humbly bow before you now and just confess we want to love your word. We want to follow your word. We want to trust your word. So give us faith. Help our weak faith to trust in you. God, move us out from the safe place onto the safer place of your word. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.